0: This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. This podcast is a venue for me to explore my curiosity through combos with leading thinkers and builders. My guest today is Lenore Skenazy, the author of the Free Range Kids book and blog and president of Let Grow, all of which focus on promoting childhood independence. We talk about how society and parents' fears are disconnected from statistics, the importance of agency, the connection to current university culture, how Let Grow is helping, and more. Please enjoy. I always like to start by having the guests give uh, an overview of their background, their journey to give context. So let's start there.
1: Journey, you must be under 35. Uh, My personal journey, Uh, a reporter for most of my life, Uh, about 15 years ago, our nine year old started asking me and my husband if we would take him someplace he'd never been here in New York City and find his own way home on the subway. We said yes. I let him one sunny Sunday. I took him to Bloomingdale's. I dropped him off there. Um, I went another direction home. He had to take the subway home. He did. (laughs) Readers, he did. I guess they're not even readers. Listeners, he did. And and he came into the apartment so proud and so excited. And as I said, I was a newspaper person for so long. I wrote a newspaper column about why I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone. And two days later, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR. Um, defending myself. got the nickname America's Worst Mom, which I wear proudly. And I started um, a blog called Free Range Kids and uh, and wrote a book called Free Range Kids and basically started the movement called Free Range Kids. And then about five years ago, um, started a nonprofit promoting the same idea that our kids are not in constant danger. And in fact, they are smarter and safer than our culture gives them credit for. Let's give them some freedom.
0: So this single event Fifteen-ish yeah. years ago, had this cascading effect, effect over the rest of your career. I, uh, can I, you go you're, you're into? Can't
1: hear it, but I'm shaking my head in in disbelief as well. It's so strange. <laughs> what if he hadn't taken it? What if he'd been dead? Nobody cares. A ten year old takes the... Just strange things like that.
0: That's the way it goes. Um, but can you give a little more? You you gave a one liner around what free range kids and let grow mm-hmm. are. Could you go into a little more detail about what each of those are, and then how they're they're interrelated? Because uh, sure. that they aren't necessarily the same thing.
1: Uh, yeah. So Free range Kids was just the name I gave the blog. I started the weekend after the article came out. And um, my slogan was, our kids are smarter and safer than our culture gives them credit for. And not everything is a danger to our kids. And, and I, I started the blog because I could also explain my side, which is hard to get out in a, you know, two minute national television live interview that like, I actually love safety. I'm a nervous mom. I like, Helmets and car seats and seat belts and mouth guards and like they're, they're not going to see. I'm wearing like extra layers and I'm just always. I'd say I'm you know at least part helicopter. So it's not like I'm a, a, you know a daredevil. I was going to say evil can evil some a reference that people still won't get. Um. So so it was just me sort of explaining um my not even explaining at the beginning. I was I was sort of befuddled as to how come what I considered just sort of a normal American childhood had become, had disappeared in a generation. And now I would say it's in two generations because when I was a kid and I was five years old, I walked to school, right? And that was not considered, you know, egregious or actionable on my mom's part. And it wasn't considered particularly brave on my part. It was just what kids did. And, um, and I am a journalist, right? 14 years at the New York Daily News, a couple of years at the New York Sun. And so I was looking up the statistics. I mean, crime is lower today. Even even today, in 2023, after it went up a little during the COVID era, it's still way lower than it was in the 80s and particularly the 90s. Bing, 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 bing. 93, 94, just the worst time in terms of, you know, murder and mayhem in America. And if you look at, if you actually go to Let Grow, which I'll explain in a second, but if you go to letgrow.org and you click on Crime Stats, there's just these amazing slopes that show you going up, 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 80s, 90s, and then plummeting down um, through through the, through this century. And and I, it didn't make sense to me that we're living in a safer time than when most of today's parents were growing up, but they were acting as if it was, you know, the end times. And so really for 10 years, I just chewed on that. <laughs> you know, how come we're so afraid for our kids? How come my mom would let me out of the house and and then go back to, you know, smoking a cigarette and drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. Um, And yet uh, no one can do that today without worrying like, oh, my God, I haven't heard from her. I should text, you know, where is she? I mean, go look on my, you know, find my iPhone, find my child. How come what feels like instinct today, this this feels like a natural worry. Of course, I worry the second my kid leaves the house or goes around the corner. And of course, I require, you know, cameras and cell phones and guards and and, and all sorts of reassurance that they're okay from second to second to second. That feels innate. And I'd say that worry and love are innate. But that kind of second to second worry because my eyes aren't on them is new. And how do you explain that something that feels quite natural and inevitable and inescapable is something that your crazy culture has imposed upon you and screw it. You know, let's change that culture. It's just not fair that it's scaring us so much, that it's keeping kids inside, that it's keeping moms behind a car wheel all the time, driving, driving. So so that's what I did for you know, I just sort of blathered and, and lectured and wrote for ten years and um, you know, got some traction. People started calling themselves free range parents and you know, they appreciated there was a name and that, that, you know, they weren't you're less of an outlier if there's a if there's other people calling themselves the same thing. But then about five years ago, I got the greatest call World. of my life, which was from um, Jonathan Haidt and Dan Shuckman. Jonathan Haidt, a lot of people know, although they always think his last name is Haidt because it's H-A-I-D-T. Um, I was just talking to him today. He's high, he's tall. <laughs> so think of him as Jonathan Haidt. Anyways, John Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, was talking to Daniel Shuckman, who for 10 years was the chairman of a group called FIRE, which fights for free speech on campus. And now it's sort of an almost an ACLU of its own. And they were saying that, you know, something was happening on campus. Kids seemed, you know, as smart as ever, but sort of sensitive to things and, and um, fragile. That was the word uh, that John was using. And I think what he meant was that things that kids had been able to accept or even embrace in other eras, you know, arguments, you know, different viewpoints or or even annoying things like a, a mouse in the dorm or a you know a, a rotten roommate. Um they the the I was gonna say instinct, but once again I'm not gonna use that word because it's not an instinct. Um the uh the MO had become to look for somebody um who was in power, uh like a you know a dean or a dorm daddy or a, or somebody in you know psychological services to solve this. And I'm pro-psychological services. I am in New York City. There is no one in my family who has not seen a shrink, right? We are pro-mental health professionals. Um, worrying is the idea that everybody needs <laughs> some kind of therapy because everyone is so anxious or hurt. Um, and you don't, you don't want to feel that way. You know, You want kids to grow up more resilient, more eager to embrace the world and less afraid of it And what seemed to be happening to uh, what John and and Dan saw happening was something that they didn't think happened just the second kids came to campus. It's not like you come to campus and suddenly feel unsafe simply because you're encountering a book or an idea that um, disturbs you. You can feel annoyed. You can feel grossed out. You can, you know, raise your hand and say, I disagree. But to feel literally unsafe from words and ideas was new. And they said something must be happening earlier in these kids lives to make them go to the idea of I'm not safe all the time. Um, And who is fighting the culture that is sort of disempowering kids by telling them that they're in constant danger. And also I'd say disempowering parents by telling them that their kids are in constant danger. And of course they found me, yay. 10 years of of that lecturing uh, made, made some impression somewhere. And they said, let's start a nonprofit together. And um, I said, OK, but uh, two things. One is let's bring in Peter Gray, who is a psychologist who I quote every day. I probably quote him in my sleep. He, it's G-R-A-Y. And he has spent his uh, professional career, he's a professor at Boston College, studying the importance of free time and free play, especially mixed age free play. You know, the, the five-year-old playing with the 10-year-old and the 16-year-old all together. Um, and the importance of that and how strange it is that we have so little of that. In our culture today, everything, you know, we're, we're so against segregation, except when it comes to T-ball, you know, and there's no, you know, no six year old should be with an eight year old. For God's sake, that's not fair. And on the bus. Oh, my God, the children are K through eight. Then they're they must be bullying and must be horrible. So he um he sort of opened my eyes to the real importance of free time and free play. And I said, let's bring him in. And we did. And then I said, the other thing is like. These. These talks I've given, um, you know, for ten years to the whether it's to a, a corporation or a school and anything in between, people nod along. I mean, people can't see, but you're nodding along uh, right now. And and they all remember their own childhoods and they all recognized the the enrichment they got from non-enrichment activities, <laughs> from you know having their bike chain fall off. Um, you know, uh, going, uh, playing hooky or just playing outside or going to the library. I mean, that was me, nerdy me. Um, and, and so they all remember how very important it was for them to have time with friends that somebody else wasn't organizing for them. And no adult was keeping score. No adult was organizing the games. Um, and, and so they all want that. They all think that that's really important. And they went home and nothing would change. <laughs> right? Because you can't be the only parent sending your kid to the park because there's no one for them to play with. And what if you get arrested for letting your seven-year-old walk to the park? I was just texting about that just now. Um, and and what does it mean if if all of children's time is organized and supervised and structured? How do you wrestle free of that Um, in a way that actually works for your kid, as opposed to saying you're going to be the only kid with nothing to do, five afternoons a week. And by the way, no social media either. (laughs) You know, go be a Lego genius. Some will, most won't. So how do you chase? I said, we have to come up with a way of giving people the experience of letting their kids play and letting their kids go beyond their sight lines for them to recognize how important and how easy this is, because they're they're not doing it on their own. There isn't there isn't a path, so let's make that path. And so everybody said, like, okay, that sounds good. And now we're let grow.
0: There's a lot to unpack. There, we're gonna <laughs> dig into yes. all of that. Um, I want to start. I, I just have with... to say,
1: like unpack. Unpack is one of the things. Like kids' backpacks are so heavy. Of course, they don't do anything after school. They're like bringing <laughs> anvils around. They can't do anything. Anyways, go on.
0: I want to start with attempting to identify the root cause of this uh, seeming shift in in sentiment uh, around giving our kids the space, the independence to explore. I imagine there's not one single thing, but do you have a hypothesis, hypothesis or set of hypotheses around what happened? Yeah, I do.
1: I mean, so, so the book Free Range Kids, I had to research it, right? So I, I have four reasons that I talk about in the book, and then there's a fifth one that's been Nagging at me to explain better, but we'll talk about that one in a second. So the the four main reasons I think are um, first of all there's the media, right? And the media when I was growing up, you know, was like two tin cans and a piece of string. But um, there was, uh, you know, cable. Cable was actually a big deal when it came along in the '80s, and it came along at the same time as um, the the new interest in stranger danger. So in, in 1979, there was a boy who was kidnapped here in New York City named Aton Pates. And it was really one of the first um, kidnapping stories to go viral. Uh, and the amazing thing that I found out in a book about the history of kidnappings in America, that's the kind of fun likes I lead. What are you reading, Lenore? I'm reading the history of kidnappings in America. Um, so when Aton was taken, the the um, the public first assumption, like like what most people thought when they heard, oh my God, a boy disappeared from a um a bus stop was that he's so cute. He's blonde, six years old. Um, it must be some lovelorn lady took him to raise as her own. I mean, that's how far we were from the stranger danger fear as recently as 1979. And when gradually the word we leaked out, maybe from, you know, the the cops or the DA or whatever, like, well maybe it was not a woman, really? Maybe it was a man. Well why? It's like, oh, Ugh. Ah, and, and Paula Fass, who wrote this book, said it was like a match to the gas tank because it was so powerful, such a shock to start thinking that, that anybody would do something like that. It really wasn't part of the public consciousness. It's hard to imagine that we hadn't even started calling people predators. They were still criminals. Right. So that was 79. 82, Adam Walsh is kidnapped and murdered in Florida and his father's um, John Walsh. And he starts... The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and then eventually um, to catch a criminal or America's Most Wanted, and then in, and then then there's cable, and so the mashup between this new fascination and horror um, about predators and twenty four hours of news time to fill means that that starts becoming a story that I mean like it's just a story that will keep you endlessly watching, hoping for a, a breakthrough, and also. It always struck me as almost respectful of the parents, you know, who are going through such misery that you sort of went along with it, too, by watching TV. There's just some kind of there's some human decency and empathy in it. It's not just gaping. Um, But it did start feeling when they put the pictures on the milk cartons, which began in 84 with the National Setup for Missing and Exploited Children, you would see a picture on your milk carton, new one, I think, every week that said, have you seen me? And there'd be a picture of a kid. And the hope was that some kid looking at this would say, oh, that's Jimmy. He suddenly came in to third grade. Nobody knows where he came from. And you say, oh, that's this missing child. But but what was disingenuous about that whole campaign is that the vast majority of kids, even on the milk gardens, were not kidnapped, were not abducted by strangers. They were children um, taken by a parent in a custody dispute, you know, a divorce custody dispute, or they were runaways. But that nuance did not come through on the milk cartons and you're, you know, you're crunching your Captain Quisp or whatever. And suddenly and you think like, wow, that just looks like, you know, that could be me. And so those are the kids, those are the people having kids today. And I don't blame them for being scared because they were brought up almost being told, literally being told in some cases that, you know, kids were being snatched right and left off the street. The National Center for Missing Exploited Children really did a number on us when they said 50,000 children are kidnapped every year. And it's like by strangers, you know, if if that was so, I think there'd be like one kid missing from every kindergarten class in America. And thank God that's not the case. So so the media took these stories, uh, revamped them. The, the uh, there was a special uh, a, a miniseries about Adam Walsh's kidnapping. It broke all ratings records. And what do you do if you're a, a TV executive? You go, get me more of those. Not get, don't steal me a child. Get me more, um, you know, miniseries and more uh, television series about that. And at the same time, the TV ch- codes were changing. And so Law & Order could come up and show you all these grisly things that you could have never seen um, before the, the, the change in these rules. You couldn't have even seen a pregnant woman before. You couldn't hear a toilet flush. So, so everything changed on TV. And then obviously along came the Internet. And people saying things on the Internet about, you know, how scary things are and how irresponsible any mom is who let their kid, you know, be outside or whatever. So the so the media, I always say, you know, we blame the media because the media is to blame. So there's definitely that's a big part of it. But um, I'll just whip us through the other three. One is that we live in a litigious society and that means that we start thinking of everything in terms of like wow, is that legal? Or could I get sued? Or what if a kid gets hurt? And I don't know if any, any of your listeners who have ever filled out one of those waivers for your kid to go on a, you know, a field trip to the field museum. <laughs> and it's like, you know, yes, if they are, you know, chopped into little pieces and fed to the dinosaur, you know, I won't sue. I mean, it just, there, it, it takes a normal activity and it turns it into something fraught with danger that you're trying to not focus on. So of course you focus on it. Um, Three, we live in an expert culture. Experts are always telling you you're doing it wrong. So, I mean, I'm just, I can't tell this, but I'm looking over at my bookshelf, which I have, you know, four bookshelves full of parenting advice. And I give away a lot of the books that come to me because it's like, first of all, my kids are in their 20s. And secondly, how much more advice can any person stand? Uh, But you're always being told that something new is bad for them, wrong for them. You know, have you considered this angle? There's sort of a prestige to coming up with a new thing that you hadn't worried about before. I once to a story about how many articles, how many studies are done every year on coffee. It's like, give up. Half the people in America are drinking coffee. We're not all dead. You can't just keep trying to dangerize everything. But of course, if there's a a headline and it says, experts say coffee before 9 a.m., you know, could be causing, you know, whatever, you, you're you going to read it. And so the experts just drive you crazy. And then fourth, we're living in a capitalist society, which I'm happy about. But there's people sometimes say, Lenore, when there were 10 kids, don't you think it's just we have so few kids these days when you had 10 kids, a couple of them could die and it didn't matter because then you still had eight. I'm like, wait, 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 <laughs> pause. <laughs> I'm not sure it didn't matter. I'm like, oh, there's another one. Oh, well, we got nine. Oh, another one. Oh, we got eight. It's still OK. We're still above five you know um it's not that it didn't matter it's that um when bigger families were uh were the norm you uh had less money per kid (laughs) less money and less time per kid and plus the kids had other kids for each other instead of just well well, you play roly-poly with me it's like oh shit i guess so there's nobody around for miles There's no kids outside i'm stuck playing roly-poly so so um when what am I telling you? So when the the marketplace started recognizing like, wow, two kids, two incomes, as opposed to 10 kids, one income, and they come with all sorts of dumb things you never, ever needed or ever will need, including things like I, I usually bring my little bag of tricks with me. But, you know, there's baby knee pads as if nobody has ever crawled, you know, as if it's too hard. And there's spoons that change color if the food in them is too hot. And it's like you couldn't touch it. You know, same thing with the baby bath temperature, duck, you put this thing in the water. And if it changes color, then it's too hot. <laughs> of course, if your child changes color, probably too hot. But you're supposed to do the, the duck first. Anyways, the point is that there's just a lot of products out there that have to make you afraid of something bad happening to your kid before you will buy it to assuage the fear. So it's creating the fear um, to, to ameliorate it with this expensive or, or simply stupid product.
0: The the media piece in particular, and the I like the phrase you used, uh, dangerizing um, of the, this notion of stranger abductions uh, is something I've had a couple conversations w- with friends and family recently about, including one last night with my wife in preparation for this call. Um, I, I asked her, uh, th- this is an ongoing conversation about the degree to which we're going to allow our one and a half year old daughter to be independent and you know, walk to the walk to the grocery store by herself Bar. at okay. what age. Uh, right. And I think there is a surprising to your point about the the statistics. There's a surprising misunderstanding about the number of of kids every year who are abducted. Uh, y- You push back against my framing of this in our. Uh, go go ahead and frame it that started. way because
1: I have like a million. I, other I, I frames, will, but then I'll ahead. give
0: the other one. <laughs> Uh, less than one kid under 20 is abducted every day in the US. And really, the statistic is 50 to 300 kids a year. So it's even less, it's substantially lower than that. Um, and yet people are still incredibly fearful. There, There's tens of millions of kids out there, the likelihood of it being your kid is very low. Why are we still so fearful? Why do we still have this irrational fear? And how do we best combat that?
1: You know, I don't blame people for having the fear because of all the things we've just discussed. I mean, you're we're living in a culture that is trying to scare us so that we'll, you know, buy trackers or, you know, or uh, put our kids in an after-school program knowing that they will be supervised by somebody. Uh, it's It's this enduring fear because, I mean, it's my fear too. You know, when sometimes my kids were coming home and I was like, gee, it's dinner time, where are they? I would, you know, I would... Flash on those fears too. Um, I think it's impossible to keep anything in perspective when it's presented as something that could happen unless you prevent it, because suddenly you think that anytime that your child is outside of your sight, they could be abducted and it's up to you to save them. So the only thing I've seen that changes parents is not my statistic that I'm about to give you um, or any of the statistics that anyone could look up. And and my favorite statistic about this, if there could be a favorite statistic about child abduction, is that if you, for some reason, wanted your child to be kidnapped by a stranger like you see on Law & Order, um, how long would you have to keep them outside unsupervised for it to be statistically likely that they would be kidnapped? So um, I think I might have told you this. Do you already know? Because if you don't, it'd be better. I told you this
0: no please share
1: well you have to guess and i'm gonna put myself uh, oh how how long yes
0: i i would guess something on the order of 24 hours
1: okay so you think if your kid was like playing outside and then decided to sleep in her sleeping bag not at one and a half but say seven and then woke up by by three o'clock the next day she'd be gone if she'd started like after school the day before
0: well the, the cops would would neighbors and cops would respond to it before they would be abducted. So I don't know. I, yeah. I it's, it's so it's, statistically it's, unlikely, I don't.
1: It's, it's very statistically unlikely, thank God. Um, so the numbers were crunched for me by a guy named Warwick Cairns, who wrote a book called How to Live Dangerously. You can figure out his uh, angle. But he said that for it to be statistically likely that your kid would be kidnapped, you would have to leave them outside for 750,000 years. And then just like if you bought a bunch of lottery tickets, you'd have to buy a lot. Um, and that's something that um, is an amazing statistic, and I like to quote it, but it doesn't move the needle, as I've seen. Like I said, you know, really, I've I had that statistic since I wrote my book. And it's its interesting. And and yet it's, you know, even Stalin said it, you know, one murder is a, a tragedy and a million is a statistic. And it's like, we all know the names of, you know, Elizabeth Smart or J.C. Dugard, both of them, by the way, are alive. So, um, so that brings me back to let grow, because the only thing I've seen that changes parents, like rewires their brains and their hearts. And it's so great that we actually have now um, a, a PhD candidate and a professor studying this together. The only thing that changes parents is letting their kid go do something without them there and the kid coming back, which the kid will. And the pride and the excitement of seeing your child blossom that way, seeing that they are self sufficient, not that you've been written out of the picture and they don't know you and goodbye. I'm, you know, taking my backpack and going to the Sierras, but just seeing that your kid is competent and confident, that rewires you. And I, I did a whole television series that nobody saw called World's Worst Mom was a reality show. And they put me with, with parents, I was not the craziest, that's libelous. They put me with very, very cautious parents, Um, like a parent who still fed her 10-year-old with a spoon in his mouth, and a parent who let her eight-year-old get a skateboard, but only if he would, he was only allowed to stand on it on the grass, (laughs) and a mother who would take her daughter, 10, into the bathroom with her, you know, public bathroom, and then also go into the stall with her, so nothing bad would happen. So these parents were, I would say, at the far end of the cautionometer, the cautionometer, whatever you want to call it. And my job was to give them each separately. Um, like I would come to the family and day one, I would have the kid, like the kid with the mom who fed him in his mouth. Obviously, she never let him use a knife or go on an overnight or do anything basically. And and he had his his stepsister, the, the husband, the, the new husband's daughter was younger and did all these things. So there was a lot of tension in the family. So for the first day, I, I sent the parents off to a spot. I taught the kid how to use a knife. And then the second day, I think he took the bus. But one day, um, we got him a bike because he'd never been allowed to ride a bike because he, A, he might fall off, obviously hurt himself, but B, he might be frustrated and I don't want my son to have to go through that, said the mom. Well, he was frustrated and he fell off and he kept doing it. And by the end of a couple hours, he could wobbly ride his bike across an empty parking lot. So, yay. You know, that was a success. But what was amazing to me is then the mom came home and her mother, grandmother, who happened to be a Russian grandma, uh, was in the living room. And the mom comes in and says, guess what, mom? Sammy can ride a bike. And the Russian grandma goes, what? Our Sammy ride bike? Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's on the bike now. Yes, you can't believe it. It looks so great. (laughs) He can ride a bike. And they're dancing. Sammy can ride a bike. Sammy can ride a bike. And I'm thinking, Sammy didn't ride a bike because of you. (laughs) You know? And so that was my first revelation. This this television show was not my idea. Making the kid ride a bike was not my idea. I was really like like a puppet. But, But what it showed me is that the fear that seems, you know, like just the thickest layer of ice, like you could drill, drill, drill down on it and not get to the fish, that it turned out to be so thin that you step on it and it breaks. And then I had 12 more families to do this with. You know, the families who wouldn't, you know, a mom who thought that if a kid came to school with a band aid that showed that her her mom must be bad, the kid's mom must be bad, because why would a kid ever have a boo boo? I mean, these were parents with, I'd say, very, very serious fears. And then I have the kids do all those things. And by the end of four little episodes like that, the parents are rewired. I mean, like like I have letters from them after I left saying, you won't believe it. Now my son is taking the subway or now my kid is, you know, making dinners for us or now I can leave them in the morning and get to work on time because they can get themselves to school. So the thing that keeps me going is the fact that as deep as these fears are, as, as intense as those conversations must be between you and your wife about what age will your kid be allowed out and how likely is she to be kidnapped, these, these they don't disappear, but they recede behind this tsunami of pride and normalcy that is really easy to um, to have happen. I mean, over and over and over again. And I just, I, I have the, the, so there's this psychologist, the psychology professor and his grad student, PhD candidate, are working to use what we call the Let Grow Project. Kids get this homework assignment that Let Grow gives out free. And it says, go home and do something new on your own without your parent." So they're using that to treat children in families um, who have an actual diagnosis of anxiety, like a psychological, you know, like they're not just a little nervous. You actually have anxiety. And they bring the families in and they talk to them about the importance of independence. And they ask the kid, is there one thing that you would want to do on your own? Oh, well, I do want to bake cookies or I do want to, you know, go to the animal shelter or whatever. There's usually something. And then the parents are very nervous because it's a sort of generational, you know, not. I'd say K-N-O-T. Uh, but anyways, then the kid does it. And like the first kid ended up walking to school. The mom had to take a day off of work. She was so worried about him walking home from school by himself. Um, but he did. And he walks through the door and there he is. And the next day she went to work. And he walked home by himself. And that weekend, he's one of those train kids. I want to take the train. He took the train five stops. That was okay. And that was at the end of fifth grade, which was last summer, last spring. And then this fall was the beginning of middle school, sixth grade. And the first day of school is you get your locker, your homeroom, your homeroom teacher, your combination, all that stuff. And the note home says, you know, feel free to bring your parents. And most of the kids did. And he didn't. And, and this was a kid who had a diagnosis of anxiety who would not go upstairs or downstairs in his own home without a parent. So that's... That's all I'm saying. What's, I mean, like, why would I bother spending 15 years on one message? It's because it, it turns out it's like, it, it, it's like if I knew that limes could protect you from scurvy and everybody's dying on all these expeditions in the 1400s. And I said, all you need is lime. Trust me, it's a lime. No, lime. Take a lime. You won't believe it. Limes. Here's an idea: lime, you know? That's what this is. It's like once you are sort of pushed to let go of your kid and your kid does something independently, you are rewired almost instantly. Do it three or four times and you are rewired forever. And so that's, that's why I'm on earth <laughs> to tell people this weird, interesting fact that will make their lives and their kids' lives a lot richer and more fun and less less awful. I mean, parents are so anxious and kids are so anxious. And one of the big reasons is because everything has been reframed as a danger, right? Walking outside, waiting at the bus stop, um, being on the bus, uh, making cookies. It's all, oh my God, you know, flames and, and disaster. And all you need is a little bit of reality and it puts itself back to where you're my mom letting me walk without that being the worst scary scariest thing in the world
0: what's the direction of causality here are we fearful and so we underestimate our children or do we underestimate them and that's why we're fearful uh to to let them go out and be independent and are there other factors at play here maybe it's not as simple as that
1: right I, i can't give you um chicken egg i can say i mean the way i often put it is that we overestimate danger and underestimate our kids. So if you think there's horrible things out there and your kid is too spacey, it's always too spacey. They never say he's too dumb. (laughs) He's so spacey, he wouldn't even notice. Or I worry, or it's just, it's worry. I mean, what I feel bad about is that this worry keeps feeling innate. Of course I'm worried every time my 10 year old is, you know, walking across the park. And um, the, the, the fifth cause that I didn't get to before that I think is is complicated or at least complicated for me to explain is that um, there have been studies done and this is slightly off track that show that like the better off you are in life, the more you 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 think you did it, right? It's like, I, I have a nice apartment. It must be me. And it's like, well, no, actually, my grandfather came over from Russia and made some money and then that, was, that allowed me to go to college without a debt and that allowed me to take a job that I liked. And so I did well, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, the the more, the more sort of content or pleased you are with your your situation, the more you think it was you. And the, the less content you are, the more you think it's sort of, you know, other forces against you. And a, a lot of us are at the point where we think that we are in control. Like everything in our lives is okay because of us. We've made it happen. We worked hard. We paid attention. And so Um, Now we've been told that if you don't pay attention to literally everything your kid is doing, saying, reading, watching, licking, seeing, meeting, um, you know, your kid is in danger. And so there is this belief that you can, you can and must control every aspect of your child's life. And then technology has taken that to 11 with, um, you know, you can see where they are on a map. You can find out if they got to school. You can read their their texts to their friends, if you want. You can see what websites they went to. You can know how long they spent on TikTok. You can know, um, you know, how many steps they took. There was this new, there's an app that not only tells you, I mean, obviously there's an app that tells you how many steps they took, but there's one that translates it into, oh, they only took 6,000 steps. So tell them to do five push-ups and three sit-ups because otherwise they'll get fat. So so suddenly your child is, is sort of um, like a pet. <laughs> that you are in charge of all day long and doesn't have any agency. And, um, and if anything goes wrong, whether that's a, a bad grade or a fight with friend or whatever it is, it's, it's your fault and it's your job to fix it or better still, never let that happen. And that's driving parents crazy. Um, it also means that there's not a lot of grace for parents whose kids do end up in trouble one way or another. I mean, I think I think the loneliest thing to be now is a parent whose child you know, dies or is really seriously hurt because, you know, 100 or 200 years ago, everybody had had that experience. Um, and now, since it is so rare and it's since it's so scary, um, just like we used to blame rape victims. Oh, she walked in the wrong neighborhood. She wore a short skirt. Now we blame the parents. Oh, why weren't they paying attention? Why didn't they put that app on? Why weren't they tracking him? Why didn't they know? And so there's the the anxiety of something bad will happen to my kid. And then on top of it, there's this anxiety of like, and it will be my fault. And I should be, you know, hated and guilty for the rest of my life. The the phrase that I hear, um, I'll just give you one example. It's like, a uh, friend who is just texting me now he's become a buddy he's sort of a skeptic and then he became sort of a let grow fan um and his podcaster and now he lets his kids do more things and one of them was he let his 12 year old walk two houses down <laughs> in suburban kentucky to a friend's house um and the friend's mother then walked her back when when it was the end of the play date which i hate even saying play date but um and And the reason was, well, if anything terrible happened, I could never forgive myself. And so what I feel bad about is this looking ahead to a disaster, thinking it's going to happen, thinking it's all your fault, and then working backwards from that to, I guess I'll walk her two houses home. So it's become normal to think of a two-house walk for a 12-year-old in the suburbs as, you know, uh, trying to escape from the, uh, you know, the, the Batan Death March, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, you, bang. So, what a, what a, you know, first of all, it's sad, but secondly, what a, what an ungrateful culture we have in that, you know, we're lucky that we've gotten rid of, you know, polio and diphtheria and we're not living through a famine and we're not living through a local war. And yet we're treating our kids as if they're in, you know, horrible danger all the time. And I must be alert, like sleep with one eye open because, you know, I don't know if they'll make it from today till tomorrow.
0: We have access to so much information and because we've mitigated or eradicated so many of those other things, our attention has to go somewhere else.
1: I'm not sure it has to go somewhere else. It is going somewhere else. I mean, I don't want to let the culture off the hook because we had eradicated polio by the time I came along and I was still walking to school.
0: Good point. You mentioned earlier that Let Grow was founded with you and, and Jonathan Haidt and a few other folks. Um, and his interest in it was because he was seeing a potential connection between the lack of independence and free play and self sufficiency early on and uh, this campus culture around trigger warnings and safe spaces, et cetera. Uh, has there been? research since done there to to definitively draw a connection between those things? And, and in either case, what do you think it is that's so important about independence and free play, et cetera, early on that helps uh, mitigate those things later?
1: Yeah, research. Um, so Peter Gray, who came in, um, just wrote a big paper that's going to be in the Journal of Pediatrics, about uh, the decline in children's free time and free play and what they call mobility or something, independence of mobility. I don't know, something about like kids being able to walk around. And the increase in anxiety and depression. Is the anxiety only about reading a book that doesn't have a trigger warning on it or hearing an idea that seems unfamiliar or wrong or mean? Um, no, it's it's sort of all anxiety. But, um, the reason Peter Gray I, I was so excited to have Peter Gray join us, and now John is writing a book about the importance of free play in childhood, or at least half of his new book, whatever he's writing so many books, who knows is because what, what Peter explains is that in free play, let's I'll, ask, I'll flip this on you haven't talked a lot. tell me what you got, what did you do for fun with your friends without supervision when you were a kid?
0: My most memorable and informative experiences were from, I'll say, fifth grade to seventh or eighth grade. Uh, my parents would let me go out during the summer from sunup to sundown, uh, like 8 a.m. until into the night. And I would go and bike around and we play basketball and go to each other's houses and play video games.
1: Okay, so for, for my elucidation and everyone else's sounds like okay you got some muscles from playing ball and riding a bike what else did you get
0: <laughs> i got a sense that uh i'm capable of of navigating the physical world on my own um a lot of time spent with friends who you know at that age you're always uh either best friends or at each other's throat. so there, there's a certain amount of conflict resolution that you have to do without the help of adults um Time management, because uh, although there weren't necessarily places I had to be during the day, I had to be home for dinner or, uh, or had other, you know, responsibilities or appoint- appointments I had to get to. Um, I would be given a small allowance, or I, I would do chores around the house to to earn money, and I had to, uh, you know, allocate that appropriately over the course of the day or the week. Those there a few things that come to mind?
1: Well, those are pretty great. (laughs) I mean, those are sort of everything that you need now, right? I mean, you're married, you have a kid, you have a job. You better do some conflict management. You better do some budgeting. You better know how to use your time. You better not be afraid of the dark, right? You have to know how to make connections to to people and friends, to be responsible. So you do your job, just like you got home for dinner. So um, what Peter Gray talks about is that when instead kids have only organized activities the the real vitamin of that experience is gone you know you're left with the empty calories of it's not completely empty calories you've learned how to kick a ball or hit a ball with a bat or play chess I mean those things are great but you haven't learned how to make the teams how to deal with an argument how to figure out what you're going to do that day who goes first Uh, what if somebody brings their little brother along and they're going to have to leave unless you figure out something for him to do? Okay, so let's play tag with them, but we better run really slowly. (laughs) And that's the beginning of empathy, right? Because then the kid is having fun and you're kind of having fun because you're goofing around. And then the younger kids are looking up to you and thinking like, oh my God, you're seven. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I wish I could be like that. And they sort of start, stop being babyish because they want to be more like the cool kids who are two years older than them. Nobody wants to be like us. We're adults. We're like robots or something, you know, something from another uh, plane. So so when you take away all those opportunities for that kind of growth, including uh, the one you just said, you're either best friends or at each other's throats. And it sounds like it's the same people, right? You're, you know, so then you find out that like somebody that you really love can be a jerk and can be somebody you love or they could do something really wrong and you can talk about it or fight about it, but then you go on and the next day it's like, okay, are we meeting at your house? Or are we meeting, you know, at Steve's house? So um, it's not surprising that if you don't get those experiences, a lot of them, which mother nature expected you to have from age two till you're married, you know, um, how could you be prepared for uh, Congress or the school board or, um, or college if, if you've, if you've been told that somebody should be there mediating the, you know, the, the misery or the disappointment or the frustration, well, I don't blame you for not knowing how to do that. You haven't had the crucial experience that mother nature expected you to get when she put the play drive into kids, she put the play drive and the explore drive into all of us so that we would do those things and we would get brave and we would get annoyed and we would get exhilarated, and we would take little risks. And there's a there's these three professors at Georgetown now who are studying whether American oh, American maybe Western kids are getting um, their freedom so late uh, that it's they've missed the years when they were supposed to be calibrating their riskometers. <laughs> um, their theory is that basically, from around age seven to twelve, Mother Nature expected you to be you know, climbing trees and jumping from rock to rock and seeing if you can do a wheelie on your bicycle. And, um, and if you're not doing them then, which is when Mother Nature or whatever you want to call it, you know, evolution expected you to be taking these little risks and realizing, wow, that was stupid, or, oh, my God, that's so easy, or that was scary, but I can do it. And if you do it later, it's not that you're lost forever, but it's sort of like if you learn a language before 12, it's easy. And after 12, you're going to have an accent. And it's same with risk. And the the one study they did that was sort of proof of concept was they just did a survey of American and Canadian college students and Russian and Turkish college students. And they asked them things like, is it risky to be in a cafe by yourself? Is it risky to be you know, uh, walking home while the sun is still out? And American kids were seeing risk where there was very, you know, statistically, there was very little risk. And that's because they'd always had an adult with them. And so why would you have an adult with you? Must be dangerous. Must be something I can't handle. And so we are not doing our kids any favors by, quote, unquote, protecting them, especially when we're protecting them in already very safe situations like walking them to school every day or driving them to school every day when they could be walking with the neighbor and you move to that neighborhood because it is so safe. So so Let Grow is dedicated to making, renormalizing independence and free play. And since we're getting close to the hour, I'm just going to explain our two big projects because everything we do is free. And so I'm just sort of desperate for more um, individuals, but particularly schools to consider doing these things. And one is, we were talking about it earlier, the Let Grow Project, where your homework assignment is go home and do something new on your own without your parents. And we originally thought this was just for basically K through six. And then we heard some amazing stories from middle school students who were starting to do things on their own and how anxiety levels were plummeting. And we have a great video about it, which I'll give to you to put in the notes or something. Um, And then we just heard this past year, a year ago from a from a high school teacher who gave the Lecro project to his seniors. And they started doing things like I drove my sister to her dance lesson. You know, I never done that before. It was great to feel useful. Or, you know, I went with some friends to the county fair, whatever they did, they were like, I finally made a meal. They just felt so great. And whatever you're doing at whatever age, it's this step forward into competence. It's not like I don't need my parents anymore, or now I can go live in, you know, Argentina. It's just, it's a great feeling to not feel helpless. And it's a great thing for parents to see their child blossoming. So there's only an upside, I'd say, from K through 12. So if anybody is interested in the Let Grow project, you just go to Let Grow and you click on project. And all the materials are there, and they're free, and it's very simple. I mean, I've just explained it to you. We have, it goes on and on for pages in the project just because we want it to look official. <laughs> but really, it's send the kids home to do something new on their own with other parents and then have them reflect upon it. If you can have the parents reflect on it, even better. And the other thing we suggest, and I was talking about this today, actually yesterday with people at me, um, about after school, keep the school open for mixed age, no devices, free play, and socializing. Because if kids go home, they're gonna be on their phones. And if they go to a, you know, like we we're talking about a, a club or something, once again, it's gonna be an adult running things. And so how do you give kids back what we were just talking about? You, you know, you're not gonna ride your bike till the street lights came on like you did, but you have a bunch of kids together. Some of them are gonna play ball. Some of them are gonna draw with chalk. Some of them are going to be arguing. Some of them are gonna be like me and just stand in the corner and <laughs> trade cards. For some reason, that was a big thing when I was growing up. Um, but they are doing the interrelating. There's nobody organizing the games. There's nobody solving the arguments. There's an adult there for legal reasons and if there's some horrible disaster. But really, you come and it's like, it was my turn, but he's taking my turn. And I supposed to go, like, I'm sure you guys can figure it out because they can. And where was I? I was listening to somebody talk about, oh, this woman on this phone call today said that she was... Um, She was like a student aide at a school where they were doing this. And she was in charge of like the third to fifth graders. And they would beg her, this is so boring. Can't I please look at my phone? And she'd say, no. And they'd say, well, there's nothing to do. And they'd be mad and they'd be frustrated and they'd be bored. Being bored is a very, you know, it's a horrible feeling. You know, you wanna jump out of your skin. But they did have other kids around and they had balls and chalk and jump ropes. And after a little while, Darned if that didn't kick in and then the parents come to pick them up and it's like, no, no, I was just like, don't worry, you will see them again tomorrow. So if that was the best part of your life, if that's what Mother Nature expected kids to be doing, if that turns out to be your kids' favorite time of their life, right, and you know that they're getting all these communications, frustration, tolerance, leadership skills, bring it back. It is so simple. Keep the school open. For at least some of the kids to be in a play club, let grow play club, or call it what you will, unstructured, free time with minimal supervision. And at least you're giving your kids a a running start <laughs> at a normal, healthy life because you're giving them the bi- vitamin that we all grew up on, which was independence.
0: Most of our conversation has been about uh, physical independence, and that, and that's mostly what the let grow program is. Um, Builds, you know, tactics or curriculum around. Uh, curriculum makes it sound more structured. It than sounds maybe it's so boring. Yeah, be, but, from... um, but but obviously, in the in the modern age, the internet and uh, you know your your time online is an important consideration. How how should we be thinking about independence and free time uh, online?
1: I don't know, um, because obviously, there's like like online is everything. It's Everything from you know reading a book to you know taking your clothes off, perhaps at the same time. Um, something for everyone. Um, all I, my, my answer to that at the moment is that I really don't know. I think that a lot of time online is fun and interesting and worthwhile, and then a lot of time is not. It's the opposite. So my, my whole thrust is to make sure that there is some time for kids to be together without their devices. Cause just being without your device without another kid is not playing. You know, I mean, maybe you'll read a book reluctantly or you'll flip through a magazine, but if there was some way to re normalize a bunch of kids being together and none of them being on their phones, I think that'd be great. So I like that. And I also like, there's a group called wait until eighth where, um, parents voluntarily like 10, 10 parents per school say, I'm going to wait, give my kid a phone until they're in eighth grade. And, um, once you have a critical mass like that, then you're not the only, you know, your family is not the only one with the kid who doesn't have a phone. I think that's a, a great grassroots thing.
0: My final question is uh, to flip it around on you. What, what's one question you'd leave me and listeners with to think about or to act on?
1: Oh, wow. Let me think for a second. What would it take to let your kid do something unsupervised? And how would you have felt if you never had that opportunity as a kid?
0: Excellent. That's a great way to, to end this episode. Lenora, thank you so much for your time. This is a blast. I, I had to have you on for another hour or two. There's so much to discuss here. <laughs> thank you
1: for having me on, you know. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No, the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate your time. You
1: no, know, the pleasure wasn't all yours because here I am. I had a good time too.